Hi there, I'm Zach Braff. And I'm Donald Faison. We're real-life best friends, but we met playing fake-life best friends, Turk and JD, on the sitcom Scrubs. 20 years later, we've decided to re-watch the series one episode at a time and put our memories into a podcast you can listen to at home. We're going to get all our special guest friends like Sarah Chalk, John C. McGinley, Neil Flynn, Judy Reyes. Show creator Bill Lawrence, editors, writers, and even prop masters will tell us about what inspired the series and how we became a family. You can listen to the podcast Fake Doctors, Real Friends with Zach and Donald on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. How are you doing this afternoon or evening or morning or whatever the heck you're listening to this? Hopefully, it's going well. I'm Ray Harkins. You are listening to 100 Words or Less, this beautiful podcast about the music scene that we just adore and love, hardcore, punk, whatever you want to call it. It is all of the independent variety, the DIY nature of it all. And actually, it's sort of sort of full circle moments that I had this week, which I'll, I'll tell you about in a moment. But the guest this week is Shane Durgy, which actually I don't think I'm pronouncing his last name right. But, you know, we'll, we'll see. Shane will let me know. But Shane, he sang for a band called Framework, which was a pre-Earth Crisis band and technically was kind of at the very, very beginning of Earth Crisis. So he was the vocalist before uh, Carl took over because essentially... I want to say like, I don't know, 75% of the band was framework. And I don't know, this all came about because a friend of mine listened to the Scott Krause episode that we did. Uh, I don't know, maybe about a month and a half or so ago and was like, Hey, would you like to talk to uh, Shane? He's saying for framework. And because earth crisis was such a huge band for me, I had to consume every piece of music that I could possibly find that was remotely attached to them. I got really into framework when I was about, I don't know, yeah, 16 or so, and uh, just loved what they, what they did. And, you know, I didn't know uh, how involved or willing anybody was to speak about that band or that for the formation of it and kind of, you know, the, uh, the interesting nature that, uh, you know, Syracuse started to kind of come up in, in regards to the hardcore scene. But, uh, Shane was awesome. He shared a bunch of really, really cool stories and kind of, you know, dispelled a few myths and, you know, was able to kind of clarify a few questions I had because, you know, it, it does get a little confusing when you're talking about like early nineties, uh, you know, hardcore, uh, there isn't, you know, a ton of information out there besides the recorded output of, of the band. So, it was a fun discussion, but I, I have to tell you, I was very excited because this past week I was in San Francisco and I got to uh, punish uh, Roman Mars, who is the host of 99% Invisible, a previous guest in the show. Like he appeared in the show, gosh, maybe about four years back. It was a long time ago, but I uh, was able to connect with him again. And it was really, really fun because I was like, hey, we've never met in person. And he's like, Ray, yes, 100 words or less. This was, you know, a really fun interview I did. And uh, it was just cool to be able to, you know, interact with people who I had only known sort of digitally before and then have them have a positive experience meeting me in real life. <laughs> Cause you know, sometimes those things can be awkward, but uh, yeah, Roman was, was super cool and gracious. And if you haven't listened to his podcast, 99% visible, you are missing out. You need to get into it immediately. 
Um, and then how am I doing? Thank you for asking. Um, you know, I, I'm doing okay. I'm, I'm kind of, you know, working through my whole job, new scenario issues that I've been having. And, um, I don't know, it's hard, you know, when, when one area of your life is in flux, you're, you feel like it impacts so many other things and I'm doing my best to just like minimize it, uh, not care about it, uh, and be able to kind of push through it. And I think everybody kind of goes through those lulls in their, you know, professional life where it's just like, oh man, I can't be like so invested in it. Like, I'm just going to show up and do the job, you know? Um, so that's, that's kind of where I'm at right now. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm excited because I've felt a lot of support, not only from you, the listener, but just my friends and family around me. And that makes me very grateful because, uh, yeah, that's anytime you're feeling that distress or urgency in your life where you're like, gosh, I feel so alone. I feel just like I'm trapped in my head. That is where you lean on other people. And frankly, that is also where you lean on professionals. Um, you know, I recently started uh, going to a therapist myself because it was like, you know, there's only so much burden that you can kind of carry on your own and just, you gotta, you gotta seek other people out. Okay. So, um, I was very grateful that I was able to uh, start visiting a therapist. So, you know, all on the road to mental wellness. Okay. Um, so yeah, that, that's, that's all about me. All right. And let's, let's just talk to Shane, right? It was a great discussion. I loved it. And, um, yeah, here it is. I think it was probably, yeah, I mean, I'm 38, so it was like, yeah, probably about 95, 96 is when I started to really take a, you know, deep dive into hardcore. Um, and okay. I will definitely never forget understanding the concept of like, you know, it's like, wait, there's, there was a band before Earth Crisis? Like, wait, wait, hold on. What is this? What is this framework? And what is this Never Again CD that I ordered from the Victory Records catalog? Um, right. And so it, it just, in my head, it like, it didn't make any sense where it was like, oh my gosh, like there was a band that existed before this. Like, you know, Earth Crisis seems so fully developed or whatever. Um, I, but I'm, I'm sure for you, like in retrospect, looking at the, uh, you know, the lifespan of framework, cause I mean, that was only really probably a couple of years that you existed. Yeah. Um, not even one year. Yeah. And so yeah. I'm sure it's very weird for you to kind of like, ref, like look at that and be like, well, that was a year. And like, you know, that was a a really hot flash in my life, but, um, you know, people still, it has resonance and people still speak about it. Um, is it weird for you to kind of like line that up in your head? Uh, a little bit. I've gotten used to it. I, you know, there's, it's been decades of getting emails from, uh, Japanese kids and, you know, kids from Italy, uh, asking me about the early nineties Syracuse hardcore scene and framework and gatekeeper and, and all of those bands, uh, it's it's kind of strange. I mean, to me, it was a, it was another uh, it was like another life. Honestly, it was so long ago. Um, yeah. So yeah. it's like, <laughs> yeah, it, it is. I mean, I definitely think, and I'm sure you have experienced this yourself, where the you know the obsession of people within subcultures is very passionate, and you start to get you know, uh, deep dives on either a certain genre of music or a certain band. And you mm-hmm. just become like, you know, you try to become a subject matter or, or subject expert <laughs> at all of yeah, the yeah. And, I, and I've been there. So I understand it from that end too, because I've been on the other side where it's once you, I mean, with hardcore in general, that was kind of, I think when everyone got into hardcore and punk, it was this new sort of world that opens up and you realize there's so much to sift through and it's this kind of exciting 
like moment of exploration. So I, I definitely get it on that that level. Totally, totally. Um, so you know, just because like realistically, I've never uh, had any sort of like uh, definitive idea of like framework beyond just the fact of like you know the two seven inches and then the CD that came out um, that put that pulled it all together. Um, yep. you know, can you, I mean, can you walk me through kind of like that, uh, you know, just, I guess the, the simple sort of like formation of the band and like, you know, how you were, you know, friends with all these dudes and like how it all kind of came together. Uh, even though I hate to ask yeah, that sure. sort of like biographical stuff cause it seems so simple, but it it's really pretty hasn't standard. Been yeah. Yeah. Well, it, it, and you know, and I know that, so that one of the great things about, um, did you interview? Who did you interview from Earth, uh, from Earth Crisis? I ha- it- yeah, I had I I had Carl on the show, and then I had you Scott. Did. Yeah, because I uh, okay, yeah. So that's the great thing about I was going to say the great thing about uh, Carl giving an interview is that he's he has these very well thought out, prepared answers. These very concise um, th- this very concise way of of answering uh, questions like that for the, I think honestly, for the sake of clarity more than anything else, because the real history is so muddled and, and foggy and there's so many weird little details that don't really matter. So it's like, why not just tighten it up? Um, so I'm not like, and I think that's part of that, uh, is, is sort of why framework is a a little bit mythical. (laughs) There isn't a lot known about it. Right. Right. Um, because I don't think any, I don't like Scott was in Earth Crisis. I don't think or in uh, Framework, and I don't think like Scott or uh, Ian, who was in Framework, also. I don't think they really talk about the band much these days. Uh, yeah, I could, talk, I can certainly walk through it. Uh, I was in a band prior to Framework called Oversight. I, everyone has like a kind of beginning that sure. sort of first band that's this sort of clumsy. Um, who do I know that plays music? Are they into hardcore? Doesn't matter. They play drums good right. enough. <laughs> totally. Right. Uh, which, and the drummer of over, of oversight was like the captain of the wrestling team on, in, in my high school. And he was more into kind of like, he had just, uh, discovered Nirvana 1991, I want to say. Um, so close enough. He was into like, kind of heavy music was definitely down to play in a band. I started this band called Oversight. I was one of the two only like kind of hardcore punk kids in the band. Uh, that led to us playing a couple shows. Uh, wow, there was like, now that I'm thinking about it, there was overlap between Oversight and Framework. Um, See, that's why Carl's better at this. It's so there's so much crap so, to sift through. <laughs> well, well, I imagine I imagine too that it's one of those things where uh, because so many of these things, especially at that age, because I'm guessing you were like what 16, 17 years old, maybe even younger. Uh, I was nineteen. Uh, I was nineteen when I joined Framework, I believe. Okay, Eight, probably probably eighteen when I was in Oversight. Nineteen when Framework. Uh, took me in. Framework started as a three piece. It was Ben Reed, uh, Scott Krause, and uh, Mike played drums. Sure. Um, they, they, uh, Ben was, and Ian, Ian was in Framework then, so it was a four piece. And Ben Reed was singing and playing guitar, and they were looking for a singer. And so I was, I was in this sort of pop punk slash kind of straight edge band because because i was straight edge uh 
and we had played a couple shows, so they saw me on stage. Uh, I think it was Ben that approached me to sing for Framework. And so for a little while, at least for a couple of months, I was, re- I was in both bands. I was practicing with Framework and writing songs with them, but I was still in Oversight. Um, eventually, I, I, tr- I had to choose one. I just didn't have the time uh, to divide between two bands, sure. especially be- because half of the half of the members of Oversight lived in another city. They lived in Utica, New York. Um, so it was, it was an easy choice, but it was hard to, you know, it's always hard to break up a band. It's when you're in a, a collaboration, uh, with, with someone like that, it's almost like a romantic relationship. I'm sure you've heard musicians talk about, uh, talk about it that way when you get when you get kicked out of a band, it's like getting dumped, kind of. Or when you break up a band, it's like the end of this really um, kind of intimate relationship. So it was kind of this uh, this sad moment where I broke up uh, Oversight to be in Framework. But Framework was so much closer to the kind of music I wanted mm-hmm. to play. Because um, I was listening to stuff like Verbal Assault, uh, Gorilla Biscuits, Turning Point. Like that was That was the music that was feeding my soul at that time. And Framework was kind of right right in the hole there like uh yeah it was was a perfect fit sure no that totally makes sense and i (laughs) i i like i like that um you know picture you painted because i do think it's one of those things where it's like you're just you know at the beginning you're just kind of excited to play music that is you know like whatever loosely defined Uh as like punk or hardcore whatever and it's only after like maybe your first or second iteration of playing in a band where you start to get a little more uh, focused on the idea of like, oh yeah, these are the bands I want to rip off as opposed to like, I don't know, we'll just play like punk or whatever, whatever <laughs> like a generic yeah. idea. Yeah, totally. <laughs> <laughs> and so that it's cool that you, that you were, you know, able to kind of shift from one, like, you know, you're in the vicinity, but then yeah, you see what framework is doing and you're like, oh yeah. Cause honestly, when you said turning point, like, I don't know why I never uh, sonically, I never kind of put those two together, but like, Oh yeah, like there's a lot of turning point in framework, and I didn't even realize that. Totally, uh, the name framework is from the turning point song. Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a common word. It could be could be from anywhere, but we were sitting there, uh, coming up with a name for the for the band, and uh, the turning point no escape split was literally like just sitting out because we were listening to it, and I think it was Ben that just said, uh, "How about framework?" Yeah, dude. And that was it. <laughs> I lo- no, I, I, I don't think I ever would have made that correlation. But yeah, that's uh, I love that because that's exactly yeah. the band that I played in was called Taken. And we got that from an undertow record. So it's like, right, right. <laughs> I think frame, and now that I think about it, I think framework was a no escape song, but it was on the turning point. The turning point. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's, I love that. It's like, I definitely remember like so many bands of that era in the nineties would like, just kind of look at, it's like, Hey, maybe we should look in a, you know, a thesaurus or like, maybe we should look at right. a, other bands record <laughs> titles or whatever. And it's like, Oh yeah, that's a good band name. <laughs> yeah. And I, I wonder it, like, I mean, just because there's been so many band names that have been picked off, like, I wonder how that exists for, you know, 16 year old kids now where it's like, you know, I mean, clearly there's like a lot of band names that have been used. And so it's like now, I mean, I, I presume they're doing the same thing. Oh, I think it makes it so much more interesting. I, I think there's some really great band names lately uh, because of that, because they they have to get a little more creative. And so there's, you know, uh I remember this is this isn't now, but back in the day, there was a band called uh, 
I love you, but I've chosen darkness. Totally. Yep. <laughs> it's great a great band, band name. <laughs> and, uh, and sometimes it's sad when a great band name is used by like, you're not that into the music. You're like, oh man, that's a great band name, but I wish I, yeah, totally. <laughs> I wish I liked the band more than the band name or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> um, so how did you, were you kind of born and raised in the, uh, cause I mean, technically you were in uh, sort of Rochester, Buffalo area, I presume. No, no, born and raised in Syracuse. Okay, and Sarah, sorry, I don't know why. Like, yeah, I was, yeah. So no, I live in I live in Rochester now, but I'm a I'm a new transplant. I I moved here for to go back to school, and now I I'm kind of putting down roots. But got it. Uh, so yeah. Syracuse is where you are. You were running running the streets of Syracuse, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, and what was your family structure like as you were growing up, like mom and dad in the house and, um, yeah, for a little while, you know, and and this might be pretty common, but like right around the time I was getting into like hardcore punk music, I was probably around 13, um, was when my parents split up. Um, and not because of like, it wasn't like tumultuous fighting, like anything like that. It was just uh, they, you know, fell out of love with each other and just kind of split. Um, but I still, I was kind of depressed, broken home, kind of, uh, you know, there was a little bit of, uh, unbalance in my life and hardcore and punk really, really saved my life then. Uh, and I think that's, that's actually probably, uh, more common Mm -hmm. than, than I had thought previously. (laughs) Well, I think that, you know, what you define as, as normal in some capacity, whether it's like, yeah, you know, this, this introduction to this subculture saved my life. And then you realize like, oh my gosh, there are so many other, there are so many other touchstones that people have that have led them to, you know, having a similar experience to you. But then, you know, I think, I think to your point, the, um, you know, there's been many situations that people have been through, you know, divorce and families breaking up and stuff like that, that, you know, kind of go anchorless and they don't have any communities to join. And yeah, those, yep. those are the sad stories you hear where it's like, Oh man, that sucks. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, but, but what, you know, then I, then I discovered hardcore and really there wasn't a hardcore scene. There was nothing to speak of in terms of like an underground music scene in Syracuse. Then, uh, there was like maybe Thursday night, uh, metal showcase at the Lost Horizon, but it was like local thrash bands from Binghamton, New York, and Albany and Buffalo. Uh, and occasionally a hardcore band would be like thrown on on that bill, but there was no real in the '80s. There was nothing in Syracuse that you could really go to and and uh, and sort of find a second home in. It was it was DJ and Carl that really kind of put the scene together. Really, just around the time I was getting into like hardcore and punk, they were already sort of they were kind of there. I didn't know them at the time, but they were kind of around you know late eighties. They were sort of setting uh, setting up the scene, uh, and I, I met them when I was in high school, and and immediately was sort of adopted into that into that crowd. Yeah. Oh, for sure. That, I think that's, um, it, it, it's really interesting when you have the experience that you did where it's like, you know, you start to get introduced to the subculture and, you know, even though there technically isn't this, you know, it's like, Oh, we've got like three clubs in the area and tours come through all the time. Like you kind of get to see yeah. the, you know, the people who start to assemble the scene as it were, whether it's like, you know, <laughs> renting out halls and, you know, doing zines and that sort of stuff. So like, did it, mm-hmm as you started to see it kind of blossom, was it, it, you know, exciting to kind of feel like you were on the ground level? 
Totally. Yeah, totally. I mean, I think, I think that's why I was so involved is because it was something that I felt like I was, I was there at the beginning of something and actually watching it grow. The first show that, so DJ Rose, he went on, he was, he was actually in the first, uh, earth crisis, which was a, which was like a late eighties, early nineties band that played a couple shows. It was DJ Sang, uh, Carl played bass. Uh, this guy, Jesse, played drums, and this guy, Johnny, from Utica, played guitar. Um, they play, I never saw them play, but I used to see flyers. The first show that DJ put together, and it was the first like real hardcore punk show that I ever went to, it was Underdog on tour for The Vanishing Point. Uh, they played with... Uh, Chuck Treese was actually touring with them. He was like their their touring bassist. Uh, they played with Die Hard from Cleveland. Dwid was singing at the time. Uh, and then a couple other kind of uh, no outlet from Albany and this band Upstate from Utica. And it was like just this legendary show in Syracuse. If you were at that show, you were like one of the originals. Um, it wasn't like a huge crowd, but it was like big enough where it's like, holy crap, there's this many people in Syracuse that listen to this kind of right. kind of music. <laughs> and it was an, it was just this like amazing show. I couldn't believe like what I was seeing um, that I was able to see these bands uh, for the first time, you know? Yeah, um, that's really And cool. I think that that's, that's where I met a lot of those guys was probably at that show or soon after John McKegg started putting on shows at uh, at Syracuse University at the Shine Student Center. And there's some pretty legendary shows at that place, too. Um, but that's where I started really meeting people like Carl and DJ uh, and those guys. Yeah. Did, was it um, like, were there kids in your, like, how did you get exposed to it kind of in the first place? Was it like friends that were getting into it or was Th- it, you know, Thra- Thrasher, Thrasher magazine. Okay. Yep. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's another, that's another kind of standard answer that you're, you get surprised by when you're older. You're like, Oh really? Everyone kind of got into it because of the pus zone. Um, yeah. Yeah, my brother, my older brother, Mike, he was into skateboarding. So he had, you know, there were Thrasher magazines lying around and it was, it was the, you know, the skulls and the, the, you know, the bands with names like Septic Death. That's what I, that was what caught my interest. Uh, my brother ordered like a Thrasher skate rock tape, like volume four, I think, whatever one has, uh-huh. Mick, Mick Shred and Cargo Cult. And I remember he was listening to it and, uh, and he really liked the Steve Caballero song. It was like this like soft rock kind of like new wavy emo love song. And he was like, oh, wow, this is really good. And then it got to um, McShred started playing. It, and it's like this guy's screaming. And neither of us had ever heard punk rock before. And my brother's like, oh, this is awful. What the hell is this? And I'm like, yeah, this is terrible. But internally, it was like, this is amazing. What am I listening to? And so I, I kind of stole the tape and, and kind of wore it out. Uh, I eventually got my dad to help me order Septic Death, uh, Now That I Have Your Attention, and uh, Thrash Till Death. It was, those were the first two records I ever ordered through a, a mail order catalog imp- back, back <laughs> in the day. That's impressive. Was your, was your, your dad, uh, could, like, did he show any concern at all? I mean, cause septic. No, death. no, he loved it. He laughed. He, he absolutely <laughs> loved it. He thought it was great that I was ordering records. Cause he used to do that as a teenager. He would order like limited edition, like Beatles, like EPs, uh, which he probably should have held on to because they would probably be worth money. But, uh, 
yeah, it was like his, his teenage years was all about, um, mail ordering records. So he thought it was great that I wanted to, to order some records and he just thought the bands were hilarious. He was like, septic death. That's hilarious. That's so, yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. He was like, Hey, I, I recognize this sort of uh, passion about music. I'm going to go ahead yeah. and lean, let my kid lean into it. Totally. totally. <laughs> um, and I so, even, I, I even came home one day, uh, and caught him listening to war zone, the self-titled album. <laughs> Dude, that's incredible. He, he had heard me listening to it and he thought it was the band living color for some reason. And he was like, I thought you were listening to living color. He loved the band living color. Uh, and so he, he, I had gone to school or, or I had gone out to play with friends or something. I came home and he was listening to the tape. He's like, this is pretty good. That's so, <laughs> I, I love, I love that. He was like, hey, let me check out this Warzone thing. This was pretty cool. I, I liked it. Of all, of all the bands. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's so cool. Um, and so like, you know, as you started to kind of see these shows, you know, appear in front of your eyes and stuff like that, did you immediately get kind of taken by the idea to play in a band or did that? I wanted, of- I, I wanted to do everything right from the start. That was okay. sort of, sort of to a fault. I was, and I'm kind of still like that. It's hard for me to focus on one thing. I get, if I'm passionate about something, then I'm like passionate about every element of that thing. So I wanted to start a record label. I wanted to be in a band. I wanted to put on shows. I wanted to just completely immerse myself in this world. And I kind of did for a little while. I kind of did all of those things for at least for a few years. Um, fanzine. Yeah. Nice. What was the, how many issues of the zine did you do? Oh God, it was, it's so embarrassing. Uh, (laughs) It was called Focus Fanzine. There's probably nine or ten issues. Okay. Uh, I hope, I hope there aren't any around still, but I'm I'm sure they're out there. They're really, it's really bad. They're they're pretty embarrassing. <laughs> well, everyone, I I do like the um the enthusiasm level, like because I, I mean I feel that many people that attach themselves to the subculture, like you're talking about, like you do feel like you just want to like touch everything. Like I want to take photos. <laughs> I want to play in a band. I want to yeah. like set up a show or whatever. Like you're just so excited about it. Yep. <laughs> That's so cool. Um, and so that, like you said, you're kind of your initial foray into, you know, playing music. Like you were, you were singing for your first band, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Was there any other, idea of like, Oh, I would like to play guitar or drums. Like, did you mess with it? Yeah. I think, I think before oversight, I actually had a guitar and a bass guitar that I bought, uh, you know, from a, um, not a thrift store from a music shop or whatever. Yeah. Uh, no, what am I trying to say? Um, like a pawn shop. (laughs) Oh, okay. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Uh, and I, I tinkered a little bit. I've been tinkering with like guitar pretty much my whole life, and I've never really gotten that any better <laughs> at it. Uh, I couldn't even name a, a guitar chord. I just know that like these strings make this cool sound. I'm going to just do this. Um, it's funny. I, you know, it's like, I don't know if you've ever thought of this or if anyone's ever talked about this, but how many guys out there that just seem like... I hate to say it, but they're just like really dumb guys sure. that are amazing musicians. And it's like, how did you learn all of your scales? You're dumb as shit. <laughs> Not to name any names, but you know. Sure. Yeah. Look, right. Look, look, looking at the near 
hardcore scene in the eighties. <laughs> <laughs> no, how, did, how a, did the Ramones? How did the Ramones learn how to play their instruments? They're total knuckleheads, but they're c- completely like uh, accomplished. Like I mean, and, and just in my life, and like I, you know, I've just met guys where it's like, how I'm so impressed <laughs> that this person can play an instrument. This episode is proudly brought to you by Sonos, which is my favorite speaker company of all time, and frankly, one of my favorite sponsors ever. But the reason that I love it so much is because it has changed the way that I listen to music, and frankly, the way that my whole family has listened to music now in ways that we never have before. So I have my son. Say hello, Raymond. Hello. Yes, and my wife. Say hello. Give her the microphone. Hello. And each of us is going to name something that we love about Sonos. I'm going to go first. I love how easily it integrates within our home. We can listen to different music in different rooms, and it all sounds absolutely incredible. Raymond, what is your favorite thing about Sonos? I like Sonos because it it's so cool, and they have an awesome name. <laughs> nice. And what about you? I like that we have a... Um, dinner time playlist so we can listen to music as we eat dinner and talk about our day. Yes, it's spectacular. And it is so easy to set up in less than five minutes. It can be on your doorstep and then integrated completely into your home. It's so much fun. And uh, visit Sonos.com to check out their entire product line. I'm very excited because we recently got a Sonos Beam that we can integrate with our television and, uh, yeah, just have another amazing speaker for the house. So Sonos is the real deal. I love them so much. Our family loves them so much. Yeah! (laughs) Thank you, Sonos. (laughs) And now's the rest of the show. Well, I'm sure it's one of those things, too, where it's like, the uh, idea of a person, because I mean, playing an instrument requires, you know, discipline and work. And yeah, so like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you look at people who are just like, oh yeah, like you've got no discipline. You don't care about anything. And then it's like, well, I, I guess they found guitar and they just poured all of their resources into and that's that. It. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's gotta be it. Yeah, totally. Um, and so then, uh, y- I'm interested to kind of see how the idea of uh, straight edge kind of, you know, permeated throughout Syracuse because, you know, uh, for many people at up to that point, like, you know, your exposure to straight edge was very much like, you know, minor threat. And then obviously all the New York city bands and gorilla biscuits and stuff. Yeah. Um, you know, and so, you know, Syracuse obviously was a whole different, you know, or ended up being a whole different strain <laughs> of that. It, it did. But early on, I would say Syracuse was heavily influenced by New York City hardcore and, and a little bit by Cleveland. Okay. Um, Earth Crisis, like Ben and Scott, for sure, were listening to Integrity. Um, also, a lot of like hardline bands, Raid, Vegan Reich, stuff like that. Um, but then there was uh, Burn, Super Touch, Judge. Uh, that was all in there. It was all part of, those were all the ingredients that sort of made, I guess, what what would become a Syracuse sound. And it makes sense. We're kind of sandwiched in between those, those two, like much larger scenes. Uh, so that's what we were influenced by for sure. Sure. No, it makes sense. Yeah. This is a kind of amalgamation of these different scenes being able to, you know, cause like they're, obviously much has been spoken about the, you know, violent nature of straight edge and like, you know, the, uh, sort of, you know, the, the hardline approach, which obviously wasn't, um, you know, completely, uh, you know, created solely by the Syracuse hardcore scene, but, um, no, but yeah, but it's just, it, it, it's interesting kind of seeing how that, that sort of, uh, I, I guess mixture of scenes that you are pulling from, 
was able to kind of create what it was that you guys were doing out there. Right. Yeah. I, yeah. Um, what was I going to say about that? I don't know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, no worries. No worries. Um, and so, you know, I'm, I'm guessing at the time too, like when, you know, as, as you got asked to, you know, join framework and start to, you know, like put out actual seven inches and stuff like that. You, cause you, you sang for on both the seven inches, right? For framework. Yes. For framework. Yeah. 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 Yep. Um, were like, I know it was exciting and I know it was like cool that you could like put up music and play shows and stuff like that. Was there any sort of, I guess, you know, real, uh, I guess vision beyond just being like, Oh yeah, we're just gonna play some shows and put out some seven inches. No, no. And and even with earth. So, uh, I don't think we really, you know, we dreamed big, but I think we were realists and I don't think like any of us actually thought like that there would be like a huge band to come out of her, uh, to come out of Syracuse, right. That that would actually ever happen. We were just kind of, we, we were, we were into this kind of music. We wanted to make this kind of music. We did, we did the best we, we could. And, uh, it was really, we were making music for ourselves and for our friends. Um, we were trying to impress like the other local bands first and foremost, right. Cause those were going to be the, the people. And at least in my mind, those were going to be almost the only people that were ever going to hear us. Um, so, so no, there wasn't like any like like long term goal for what we were doing. Sure, right, yeah. I mean, because at at that point too, there really wasn't blueprints for metallic hardcore to be able to. It's like you know, you could point to a few bands in New York City that obviously had that sort of you know idea of being a careerist when it came to playing in a band, but you know, yep. there, yeah, <laughs> that definitely wasn't. Yeah, any like vision. when I, I like quicksand slip probably came out. When did that come out? 92. Uh, mm-hmm. and so that's, I think, so that's like right around the time, like we're just starting to sort of catch wind and like, even like Nirvana and the whole grunge thing, we're just starting to like sort of notice that, uh, underground music can have, a a, a wider reach, uh, that it had previously. Right. Um, but then again, looking back, you look back at like Bad Brains and Minor Threat, and you see how big that those bands got uh, after the fact. It's always it always seems to be like after the fact this band becomes kind of legendary. Um, so yeah, I'm not I'm not sure. Uh, it was weird. The early '90s hardcore was just a weird time. I don't think anyone really knew uh, what they were doing uh, and what the like. The, even the sound was kind of all over the place, the sort of like early 90s hardcore sound. It could be like one of so many different things uh, and, a, and, a, and a lot of hybrids. Um, sure. Burn, like Burn is a great example of that, I, I feel like. Uh, they, it's hard to like really pin them down to any uh, to a certain ki- like style of hardcore. Um, yeah. The de- yeah, there's definitely, you felt like you were, um, you know, kind of throwing a lot of stuff out there that... <laughs> it all fell under the banner of, you know, aggressive music, but it was like, Oh yeah, we got this part and this part and like, we'll put them together and then we'll see how it sounds. Right. Yeah. I mean, the reason my dad liked Warzone is cause it just sounded like hard rock to him. Totally. Like, you know, like, and it does like that album specifically, the self-titled is, is pretty, it's, it's like not that hardcore. It's actually like kind of straightforward, yeah. like heavy rock. Totally. Uh, well, cause every, 
<laughs> late 80s, early 90s was that weird juncture where, you know, hardcore bands started to run into that wall of like, mm-hmm. oh, we can't be, you know, like whatever uniform choice went through it and, you know, Unity and so many other bands were just yeah, like, yeah, yeah. well, we can't I, be a hardcore band, so we got to be a metal band, I guess. Yep. <laughs> and well, so, well, but yeah. we'll keep playing hardcore shows because that's all we know. <laughs> totally, right? yeah, <laughs> exactly. Because like we, there's no way that we can obviously, you know, go play in the Sunset Strip. Like we right. gotta, we gotta play the shows we've always known because that's what yep. we're known for. Um, what were the shows that kind of stick out to you? If I say, you know, like some of the best shows that you played while you were in uh, Framework from that perspective, because I'm gonna guess like that locally people were pretty interested in what you guys were doing and your shows were, you know, relatively well received. Yeah. <laughs> the scene hadn't really matured that uh, sure. enough at that point to get like a huge crowd at any of our shows. We, I don't know. Framework was an opener. We were, we were together for about a year. We played maybe five or six shows. Um, there weren't any like, uh, we played with some amazing bands. We played with uh, Endpoint, Undertow. Um, I want to say we probably played with Supertouch at one point. Uh, there's like uh, there's some great bands that we played with, but I can't like say there was any one show that that stuck out to me. Um, yeah, it was just like it, that's the thing with a lot of the bands that I was in in the in the '90s. Uh, Gatekeeper was the band I was in afterwards, and we played like maybe three shows uh, before we disbanded. And it wasn't like it, they were we were just an opening band. I never I, that, in terms of like the hardcore bands I was in, sure. they never they never really uh, got noticed until after they broke up. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. <honest. laughs> yeah. Well, and sometimes that happens where it's like, you know, you go completely under the radar, but then, you know, thanks to other extenuating circumstances, then all of a sudden people start to pay attention to it. And it's just like, Oh, like, I mean, so many, especially in the early nineties, so many bands retroactively are, you know, infinitely more popular now than they were, you know, obviously when they were playing shows and active playing in front of 10 people or whatever. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And with the internet, it just keeps going. There's like still new audiences discovering this stuff. It's, it's kind of crazy. Yeah, um, for sure. What the, um, so, you know, as you kind of started to, to figure out what it was that, you know, you wanted to do, like, you know, did you care about school or were you basically just like, listen, I want to be involved with music, whatever that may mean. That's all I wanted. One of my big regrets is that, uh, um, you know, both of my parents wanted me to to continue to into college. So I went to school for illustration because I thought that, you know, the only real skill I have is uh, visual arts. I'm, I'm a pretty good artist. Uh, but I didn't know what I wanted to do with that. So just throw, throw a dart at, a, at, at the board and illustration. I'll go to school for illustration. Uh, but my heart wasn't in it while I was in school at Syracuse University, right? Because I didn't want to leave Syracuse. I was in a band. Uh, I... Let me see. At that time, I was that was a little later. Uh, I went to school a couple years after I graduated from high school, and again because I w- was so involved in um, the music scene, that was really the the focus of my life. Um, but I stayed. I I had to stay in Syracuse because that's where my interests were. That I was still part of that scene. So I went to Syracuse University, but I didn't really care about school. I, I should have waited. Um, it's like I said, I have this like, 
uh, this uh, bad habit of not being able to focus on any one thing. And I think you need that. If you go to college, that better be your focus. Sure. Or it's just, or it's just not going to work out. Yeah. Yeah. And what, um, I, I guess what sort of medium were you artistically expressing yourself? Uh, fan, like I really wanted to paint fantasy book covers. That was oh. maybe, com- maybe comics. I was really into like science fiction and fantasy. Um, yeah, that was that was sort of where where my head was in terms of in terms of art. Uh, that's changed over the years. I've I've discovered contemporary artists that I really love, and I've gone through a lot of different changes in terms of in terms of my focus there. Sure. Uh, but yeah, so yeah, what was I, I was like running a record label. I was still doing the fanzine. I was in a band called the farthest man, uh, when I was at, at Syracuse university. Okay. Um, what stylistically was that going for? Farthest man was more post hardcore quicksand, uh, little bit. I was really obsessed with the band kerosene 454. Oh, sure. Um, I think as a vocalist, I kind of, I was kind of influenced. Um, I've always liked really weird vocals. <laughs> right. <laughs> I was so, you know, I was so, so when you, when I first got, first got in touch with you, I decided to listen, obviously I'm going to listen to the podcast, uh, and, and see who you've interviewed. And I saw you interviewed the human furnace and I was like, Oh my God, I got to hear this. And then I immediately regretted it because he's just a guy. I don't want the human furnace to be a person. He's got such a bizarre <laughs> voice. Yeah. You want him to be like eating a human face while he's talking to you. Right. Uh, <laughs> He's just a nerdy tattoo guy. Yeah, just lo- lo- loves horror, loves like pinball. Yeah, just yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, but I, I, no, think- I, I, I relate too much to him. I don't want to relate to the human furnace. He's got to be this weird monster. Uh, I've never, you know, I never saw Ringworm, uh, sure. and I, and I've never met those guys. But that, that's one of my. They've been one of my favorites for for decades. That's a that's one of the bands that I'll revisit every now and then. Yeah, uh, from that time. Band. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I think the, um, and I think this kind of just, well, it doesn't even go without saying, but I just think this, it happens when, uh, you know, you obviously get of a certain age and you start to realize where it's like, oh, these people who you were watching play shows felt so exponentially older than you. But then you're like, oh, they were like three years older than me. But like, you know, when I'm 16 and they're 19, that felt like such a wide gulf when it's like, no, not really. It does. It's true. (laughs) And they're just like, to your point, yeah, they're just like normal people. Like they may, you know, like Dwid is, yeah, he obviously looms large and he's got kind of a weird dude, but you know, he's still just a normal dude, but like still just a guy. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) No matter what it's like, yeah, everyone's just, uh, just weirdo humans, especially in our, you know, weird subculture. It's like, yeah, they're (laughs) everyone just is a, is a giant nerd. That's all that it basically comes down to. Yep. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) Um, and so that, I mean, you know, I find it interesting that you have, um, you know, throughout your life, you've obviously stayed connected to, you know, independent music. Um, it doesn't obviously have to be specifically to hardcore, but, you know, you continued as you went through college and, you know, continued to pursue um, artistic endeavors when that is obviously not an easy life to kind of dedicate yourself towards. <laughs> so like, right, true. Um, so you just kind of always get got pulled in that general direction. Yeah, I just didn't know what else. You know, I I did have a, a teacher in at SU, an illustration professor, who 
said something really profound to me. He said, uh, he said or to the class, he said, um, you know, I, I was asked once, you know, when, you know, I was struggling as an illustrator and I was asked, why don't you, why don't you just surrender and do something else? And he said, he said it didn't make any sense to him because he didn't know who, who do you surrender to? How do you surrender? How do you give up? How do you give up? Like the only thing, you know, you, there's like, he just didn't know even how to do that. And I realized that that's kind of the same for me. I just don't know how to not, how, like, I don't know how to do anything else. This is it. This is, this is the thing I'm interested in. This is what I know. And it's just, this is where I live. And I just don't know how to do anything else. So sure. it's like, it's yeah. just, I might as well just keep struggling until something happens. Sure. Like this is, yeah, this is just what I, uh, I will focus on and do regardless of, you know, if I'm able to figure this out and do a career, I'll, I'll, I'll figure it out. <laughs> right. And uh, I, it took me a lot longer than others, but I, I finally have landed in a, a, a place that I actually, I love my job. I run the art gallery at, uh, at RIT, the university here in Rochester, um, in a world where everyone is confined to their homes, society begins its largest bin watch to date. In the hallowed library of Hulu, or perhaps on a shelf of DVDs you haven't looked at in a decade, is a show that perfectly encapsulates life in the early aughts and launched a friendship that would inspire millions. Hi, I'm Zach Braff. And I'm Donald Faison. In 2001, we starred in Scrubs, a sitcom that revealed a glimpse of what it was like to survive a medical internship. As Turk and JD, we explored guy love. Nearly 20 years later, a lot has changed. We're not supermen, but we're still best friends. Eh. Given the mandatory lockdown, there's no better time to relive the series that brought us together in the first place. And we're doing it with a podcast. That's right, people. We're going to bring friends and crew members and fellow cast members and writers. And and guess what? We're going to even invite some of you to call into the podcast and ask all the questions you want of the entire Sacred Heart staff. Join us for Fake Doctors Real Friends on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah, I walk, love, walk, I, it's, walk me walk me through what that that looks like because I mean obviously most people have experienced you know art museums whether it's you know contemporary art museums or you know like whatever it's, going a, to it's the, an academic gallery so it's like it's like the MFA thesis shows and faculty shows and things like that okay uh, but I wouldn't uh, you know I, I, I my undergrad was in illustration late nineties I took like a full decade off before I even considered going back to school for anything. So working odd jobs, working a lot of retail, working in warehouses, just making a living, paying the bills. And I had a few friends. One of them is uh, Chuck Hickey, who sang for the band Black SS. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah, I know what you're talking about. Or I know the band, yeah. Yeah, Chuck, we go back a ways. Um, We were in a band... uh, few years back, about eight, eight or nine years ago, we were in a band together called Rust Empire. He played guitar and I sang uh, post-hardcore, kind of like heavy rock, post-hardcore kind of sound. Um, we, he was going back to school. Well, he was going to school for the first time. His girlfriend, now his wife, but his girlfriend at the time told him that he has to, he has to do something. He has to, he was a, he had been a bouncer and uh, bars downtown Syracuse for about 10 years uh, and just singing in punk bands and, and 
you know, kind of like me, just being a part of that scene and just see it just sort of existing in this in this scene. And she sort of gave him this ultimatum: you have to you have to do something. Just go to the community college, um, take a class in anything. Just take a class in something you're interested in, but go, but take a class, do something. So he did, and he took a class in psychology, and he took a class in uh, film studies, and both teachers basically encouraged him to continue on and get a degree in film theory, something like that. Cause he, he actually, it turns out he was a great, uh, thinker and a great writer and he could be like a really good film critic, right. Is sort of where it was starting. Mm-hmm. He went on, he went to Oswego, uh, state college to get his bachelor's in film. He had a teacher there that said, you're you're really great at writing screenplays. You should be writing screenplays. So he went to Chicago, got his master's in, in film and screenwriting, I guess. And now he works at, at Netflix or less, less. I heard he was working for Netflix for like the Marvel uh, shows on Netflix as uh, I think in their marketing department as a writer. Okay. Uh, and it's just, I was there early on in this trajectory and he was like, he was in Oswego when we were in the band together, and he was like, the best decision I ever made in my life was going back to school. And he was sort of pushing me to do the same thing. So so I did. I, yeah. I, I enrolled at uh, Rochester Institute of Technology to get my MFA. I had no idea what that was going to do. I just thought, I'm, in a, I'm much older and much wiser now. Doors are going to open for me that I didn't even know were there, that kind of thing. And it's exactly what happened. I went, it was like perfect timing too, because I, I go to school, I get my MFA. And as it, the, the same year that I'm graduating, the woman that was running the, the campus art gallery, uh, she retired and they posted a position. So I applied, got the job. They, it was a part-time position, but they decided to turn it into a full-time position and just give me extra responsibilities, sort of administrative responsibilities. Uh, and it's, it's life-changing. I mean, it's like the best decision I ever made. It really like changed my whole like lifestyle, improved for the better. Uh, it's great. I love working for, for a college. Nice. That, no, yeah. that's awesome. That's very, that's really cool. Cause I mean, I think that it takes people, um, you know, it, it, people go on a circuitous path when it comes to, you know, just trying to focus on whatever it is that are passionate about. And sometimes it, you know, happens quickly. Sometimes it happens much later, but it's just cool when yeah. you can actually attend school and be into it and <laughs> be like, well, this right, is like right. really beneficial. It, and so, like, that's my best advice to younger people now. And I tell I tell this this I teach also. I teach at, at uh, a few different schools. RIT. I'm teaching in Oswego in the fall uh, as an adjunct. And I tell my students. I, I uh, my students will ask me, should I go on and get my? Where should I get my MFA? What What should I do when I graduate? And I always tell them, take a break because it's what I did. And unless you're and and some students and some younger students are on the path and they know exactly what they want to do. But if you don't, if you're not like, if you're not feeling it and you're uncertain, take a break, walk away from it. it you, you can come back to it later in your life when, uh, when you're a little bit wiser and you know exactly what it is that you're, you're looking for, you'll be able to see the opportunities that much, uh, that much better when you're, when you're older and wiser, you just, you see things that you wouldn't see when you're younger. 
Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I agree wholeheartedly. Yeah. Um, the last thing I want to hit on was the, um, you know, the, the fact that you, your music taste obviously evolves over time. And like, you know, yeah. I'm sure, like you said, where, you know, you can still listen to ringworm and appreciate it and stuff like that. Um, totally. You know, what's, what's your kind of, uh, you know, headspace at now, like, you know, listening to framework now, is it one of those things where you're like, you know, embarrassed? And I don't mean that in like a disparaging way, but just like, no, oh. no, no, but a little bit, but framework is easier than some of it. Uh, gatekeepers hard to listen to. <laughs> It's, sure. uh, that was like, uh, that was a metal band. Uh, it was really a hardline band. Um, and if I listen to it now, it's just excruciating. Honestly, if I listen to earth crisis sometimes, because, uh, I'm responsible for the whole anti-abortion pro-life thing with earth crisis, the whole controversy is because of the song I wrote standby. Sure. Uh, and, Probably, I would say by the time that seven inch came out, I was already super pro choice, other end of the spectrum. Like literally within a year, I had changed my politics. There had changed. And it was D, uh, DJ Rose uh, sat me down and was like, "Can you look a thirteen year old girl in the face? She's just been raped. Can you look her in the face and tell her she has to carry the the child of her rapist?" to term. Could you really do that? Do you really think men should be making uh, laws governing a woman's body? This is something that'll never happen to you. He had this like long kind of feminist <laughs> speech about it. Uh, and as like a, I was like 19 at the time, as a 19 year old kid, it was like, that was kind of an awakening for me. I was like, I never really thought of it that way. I was just, I was really into hardline. This is one of the tenets of hardline. It made sense to me at the time that it's an innocent life, just like animals. It can't speak or fight for itself. Um, but there's nuances to it. There's there's other layers to it that I hadn't considered. And honestly, my my politics are pretty far left these days. So listening to something like listening to you know hearing Carl sing the lyrics to Stand By and knowing that uh, that those are mine is is a little embarrassing. <laughs> sure, sure, yeah. They sh- they should have just dropped that song, but. Uh, I don't know. I had a kind of profound experience seeing them at Blender Theater in New York City, where I was in the. I I got in on the guest list. I was in the audience. I was in the back of the, not backstage, but in the back of the auditorium, kind of watching from, from a distance. And it was like hundreds of kids were singing along to Stand By to this, these lyrics that I had written when I was nineteen, and it was. Like, uh, it was surreal. <laughs> Honestly, it's sure. kind of crazy. Um, yeah. What, a, what, um, hitting on that, cause it, you, you wrote some of the songs that were on the, uh, was there any other songs on the all at war seven? Oh, that you- uh, so for, that's another, so for clarity, it's easier to just say framework broke up and then right. earth, earth crisis sort of came out of the ashes of, of framework. Uh, it didn't really happen that way. Both bands existed, uh, simultaneously at one point we played shows together. Like there was a couple shows where framework and earth crisis were, were both on stage. Um, earth crisis really started as at least this, uh, this iteration of earth crisis, the early nineties, uh, Ben Reed who played guitar and framework, he and I were really getting into hardline and we wanted you know, not everyone in framework was sort of, uh, of the same mindset. Um, we wanted to do a side project and it was going to be, it was going to be a heavier hardline, very militant vegan, uh, 
hardcore band. So we wrote a couple songs, just Ben and I. I wrote lyrics, he wrote some guitar parts, and uh, eventually he brought in Carl to play bass. So then it was the three of us. It was Carl, Ben, and I. For a couple practice sessions, it was uh, it was just the three of us writing these songs. Carl brought Ecoside. He had the bass line, and he had uh, the lyrics for it. I had a song called Standby, and I had a song called All Out War. But uh, eventually, Carl completely changed changed the lyrics, probably for the best. Uh, I don't. I probably actually have that lyric sheet here somewhere. I'm sure I have no doubt that Carl's lyrics are better. Um, That's cool. What, so what would happen eventually is that I was singing for Framework. Uh, Carl and Ben had talked. I think I think Carl and Ben had been practicing probably without me. Maybe I was working, whatever. Um, it was this sort of slow transition where suddenly I get a phone call from Carl uh, you know, hey, Shane, uh, it's Carl. Uh, I've, we've been talking. Ben and, and Scott want me to sing for for this band. I think we were calling the band Declaration was going to be the name of this band. We really were trying to get on uh, Hardline Records. That was at the actual point of Ben and I starting this band. We really wanted to get on Sean Vegenreich's radar. Uh so we, we, we write a couple songs. I get a phone call. They want to switch it up. Ben, uh, Carl's going to sing. I'm going to play bass. I think we tried that maybe once, and then they full-on kicked me out. <laughs> sure. And, they, and eventually just broke up Framework. I mean, when they, when they kicked me out of the, the Earth Crisis side project, it didn't hurt that bad because Framework was kind of my was what I was honestly a little more interested in. But then they broke up framework to do Earth Crisis full time. So that's what I mean, where there's these like little details, there's this sort of overlap, but it's so hard to to put it together. For clarity, it just it just sounds better to just say framework turned into Earth Crisis. Right, and, right. <laughs> yeah, rather than like yeah. this this super, you know, dramatic thing of this this yeah, breaking yeah. up. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. Especially too, where it's like you know, everyone's just kind of feeling out what the heck they want to do. So, yeah, I understand what you're saying. <laughs> but that's how that's how that's how it happened. That's why "Standby" was written by me because I was in the band for a second. I sure. was actually the the vocalist for the band for like two seconds. I was there for sort of the the planting of the seed, I guess, if you want to call it that. Um, so, uh, you're recording. Uh, yeah, I would love I would love uh, to hear. All right. Yeah, yeah. Just to. Uh, you know, to add a little something, um, to reiterate, this was kind of a time where uh, Earth Crisis and Framework kind of coexisted. There was a really brief time where they they kind of existed together. Um, Earth Crisis, their their first show was a house show. We played in someone's garage in their backyard, and it, they played like four songs, and then Carl passed the mic to me, and we you know Framework played a full set. So it was kind of like right after, right after the sort of formation of of Earth Crisis, as we kind of know it today, you know, um, with Carl singing and and Ian and Scott were were in the band then. Um, we also practiced in the same space together. Uh, obviously, it was like the same band except a, a different singer. Uh, Scott Krause's parents' house uh, in their basement was where we practiced for the you know a couple years is where. Earth Crisis practiced, where Framework practiced. Um, and I remember this one day, I was down there, uh, crouched down by a washing machine, watching them practice. 
you know, they only had a couple songs, maybe five or six songs at that point. Um, basically the songs that were going to be on the all out war EP and a couple others. And they've been kind of, uh, polishing these same songs over and over again for, for the last few months. And, uh, they finish, they finish practicing and, uh, Mike Riccardi, the drummer says, you know, Hey, does anyone have anything else? Uh, you know, we haven't really written anything new in a while. Um, they're turning off their amps, getting ready to, you know, to take off. Scott looks up, he goes, Ben, you've got something, don't you? And Ben kind of looks at him. No, what are you talking about? He goes, that you do. You have that, that Slayer riff you were playing earlier. <laughs> and, ben, and Ben goes, I don't, what are you talking about? And Scott goes, the Slayer riff. And Ben goes, oh, that's nothing. That's just, it's just a breakdown. I was just going to kind of add that to a song later. And so we get him to play it. Now everyone wants to hear the riff. And so he plays it. Dan, 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 dan. Right, and it's not—it's just a single note. There's not much to it. But Mike Riccardi has him, you know, keep playing it, keep playing it. And now Mike's trying to like fit this like kind of drum roll into it, and it's just like your standard band practice. You know, there's a riff. The drummer's trying to fit something in, and it finally clicks where Mike kind of hits it, and just like felt great. I think we all kind of knew like, man, this was going to be a really great, great song. Whatever this is going to become, this is like kind of sounding really cool. Mm -hmm. They ride it out for about five minutes. They stop and there's just kind of like a little bit of silence. And then they're like, yeah, maybe we'll use that for something. And that was kind of it. And they they turn off their amps and we go out to dinner or whatever I was waiting for. Um, But looking back at that now, obviously, like years later, that's one of my most vivid memories from that time period because I keep going back to uh, how great it was to be sort of a witness to, to the sort of planting of that seed. Um, but also like two things kind of come to mind and that's that how many famous songs kind of happened accidentally or almost didn't happen at all. Like Ben almost didn't bring that riff to practice. He almost didn't play that for him. Scott had to kind of coax it out and that's sort of the second thing is I feel like Scott Krause was really, when I knew him back then and he was in framework, um, he was a little more reserved and humble about his contributions. And Ben was kind of the ego in the band. He was sort of the main songwriter. He wrote most of the songs for framework, all of the early Earth Crisis songs. Um, I know Scott wrote actually my favorite framework song is Gatekeeper, and I think that was entirely written by Scott. That was that sort of rare song that that Scott wrote. Um, but Scott clearly heard something in in this really simple riff because he was really coaxing it out of Ben, trying to get Ben to play it. Uh, and looking back, I think he must have heard what I was was hearing in it once Mike came in with the drums. It was just kind of it came together, but then that was it. They didn't really have a second part or lyrics or anything. Um, but of course, eventually it becomes this iconic song. I've heard people honking their car horns like to the rhythm <laughs> to of the rhythm. song. Yeah. And it's like, you know that that's what they're doing. There's nothing else. It has to be that, right? Um, that's yeah, so, so funny, that yeah. A, an, acci- a little, a little accidental, uh, yeah, that, <laughs> that it's like, yeah, if there wasn't that, like, I mean, you know, I, I'm sure at some point the, uh, 
the riff could have come out, but just the idea of like, oh yeah, like all, everybody's wrapping up for the night. It's like, oh, what, what about that thing? And then that turns out to be the song that inspires, you know, <laughs> 10, 10,000 plus children to uh, claim straight edge and whatever. <laughs> For sure. Yeah. 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 The amount of reach that they've had since. And it's like, that's still like the, the number one song that gets played on Spotify. That's still like, they're, they're sort of, that's like the earth crisis hit song kind of, you know? Yeah. That's, uh, that is the mantra. That is the, uh, <laughs> yeah. Every band has their, uh, I mean, it's not like a hardcore band like has a single per se, but it's like, you know, right. That, that is the single for earth crisis as it were. Yeah. I can't, it's rare. I can't think of too many bands that have like this one single song that stands out where you, you hear the name of a band and it's this one song that you think of. Right. <laughs> That's funny. Probably like what, one or two practices under your belt from that perspective. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, Shane, thank you for letting me uh, pick your brain and go down, uh, you know, very dusty old memory paths. But yeah, uh, absolutely. I, I appreciate you doing that. Thank you very much, Shane, for coming on the show. Appreciate you hanging out and um, yeah, you know, trying try to unearth some memories from your past. And uh, yeah, I appreciate that. It's always it's always fun to go through that with a person who lived it and experienced it in a very, very real way. Next week is a really, really fun discussion I had with a new friend a from a younger band, the band that is only now, I think, recording their second LP, uh, Patrick Miranda. He is from a band called Movements, who's from here in Orange County uh, on Fearless Records. A really, really good band. Kind of that whole, you know, sort of new, modern, post-hardcore stuff. Just a really good band. He came over to the house, and we had so much fun together because, uh, you know, he's a hardcore kid and um, just has a lot of interesting stories. And I, I like it when I can interview people who are, you know, frankly, like 10 to 12 years younger than me and have a whole different set of experiences when it comes to, like, going to shows, but at the same time has that sort of foundational experience of the whole DIY scene that we love, right? So much fun. So that's what we got next week. And uh, until then, please be safe, everybody. And special thank you to Sonos, as always, my favorite sponsor. They will change the way you listen to music. Go to Sonos.com. You can check out their full slate of offerings. They just have the best speakers in the game. You can connect them to any device wirelessly from a sort of Bluetooth, Wi-Fi perspective. It's so cool. You can connect them to your record player. It's one of the most versatile speakers and frankly, one of the best sounding speakers I've ever owned in my entire life. So you need to up your game and go to Sonos.com to learn more. Thank you very much, Sonos. Hi there, I'm Zach Braff. And I'm Donald Faison. We're real life best friends, but we met playing fake life best friends, Turk and JD, on the sitcom Scrubs. 20 years later, we've decided to rewatch the series one episode at a time and put our memories into a podcast you can listen to at home. We're going to get all our special guest friends like Sarah Chalk, John C. McGinley, Neil Flynn, Judy Reyes. Show creator Bill Lawrence, editors, writers, and even prop masters will tell us about what inspired the series and how we became a family. You can listen to the podcast Fake Doctors, Real Friends with Zach and Donald on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts.